It's S in Hell, a look back at Saturday Night Live with your hosts, Matt and Keith. Brought to you by Lion's Den Audio Theater. Like and subscribe to Lion's Den Audio Theater for more Lion's Den goodness. And here are your hosts, Keith and Matt. Saturday Night Live, Season 2, Episode 9, starring Jodie Foster. Originally aired on November 27th, 1976. Hello, my name is Keith, and with me as always is my good buddy, Matt. Hello, Matt. Hello, Keith. How you doing? Things are okay. How are you? I'm pretty good, thanks. Allow me to take the opportunity to publicly renew my thanks for you asking me to do this. I have a great time, and I love doing it. I have thoroughly enjoyed uh, every second of doing this as well. This is uh, this has been a lot of fun. I'm starting to make friends online based purely on this particular podcast, which is really nice. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And joining us for the very first time ever, uh, a tremendous performer, a singer, actor, many other things, Ron. Hello, Ron. Hey, Keith. How you doing? Doing wonderfully. Matt mentioned earlier how excited he was that you were joining us tonight. Oh, awesome. Thank you. It's true, I did. He doesn't say that for all the third chairs. Right. (laughs) So, Ron, the first thing I usually do when we have somebody in for their their first time taking up the third chair is any memories of Saturday Night Live, uh, you know, growing up or uh, or later in life? Was there uh, any particular cast or performer that jumps to your mind when you think Saturday Night Live? Oddly enough, when I think Saturday Night Live, I think Steve Marty, which I know he wasn't a cast member, but he made such an impact whenever he was on the show that he stands out as solidly connected to it, I think. I used to think Steve Martin was a cast member for the longest time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think most of us did, right? He's uh, had those great bits. Uh, well, him and Dan Aykroyd, I guess, too, Wild and Crazy Guys, and just so much stuff that is so solidly locked into our culture now that seems connected, you know, comes out of the Saturday Night Live experience. Yeah, so that's probably what comes to my mind. So tonight, our host is Jody Foster. And uh, the musical guest is Brian Wilson. But let's talk Jodie Foster first. Foster started modeling when she was three. And I remember there was a copper tone ad, I think, or a suntan lotion ad. That was really her her first big thing that people saw her in. And she was quite young at the time. She jumped over to acting at the age of six. At this point in time, in November 76, she was a huge name following her performance in Taxi Driver where she'd got an Oscar nomination for uh, Best Supporting Actor. 1976 was a huge year for her. She did uh, Bugsy Malone, The Little Girl Who Lives Down the Lane, and Freaky Friday. Jodie Foster is a child star. But child star is such a weird term for her, firstly because we know that she goes on to be an adult star, but also she was one of these folks like, well, there's really not many there. Maybe Ron Howard, who was such an impressive young person to those in the film industry. They were like genuinely blown away by her interest in film, her maturity and her intelligence. And in some ways, uh, you know, when I read about Jodie Foster, she seems to be less child star and more child prodigy. I would be in agreement with that. I, uh, my familiarity with Jodie Foster began in the early nineties, of course, with the big hit. And I still think Silence of the Lambs is one of my favorite movies. I love it to death. And then I, wa- I went back a little, you know, I'd seen Taxi Driver and I, I love The Accused. But, uh, but the, the, you know, I, I only really knew the big stuff. I, I would, you know, I watched Contact. I didn't like Contact. Anyway, I digress. I have to 100% agree. And I think that's what's so neat about this podcast is we're taking the, the superstars of today and kind of, in many ways, seeing places where they began, you know. But Jodie Foster was already like an old hat by the time she did Saturday Night Live, even though she was only <laughs> what, 14 years old. She'd been in television for quite a while at that point. She was also you know, very intelligent person anyway. So I think she came across as older than her age. Yeah, she fit right in. uh, But it's awesome to see her performing like this and maybe a little bit out of her normal routine. Yeah. So this is a gamble. I mean, they've got a young person hosting it. So we'll jump into the cold opening. So it's Gilda. And Gilda says she doesn't have much to do on the show. So she gets to do the live from New York bit. After she says that she gets to say live from New York, the band starts up and goes to the opening clips. Uh, She then calls them back and needs to explain herself. She says she did well in a sketch, but they decided to cut it. And a little Chiron pops up saying that she's being phased out and she was starting to get suspicious. So they asked her to do the cold open. She says Jane is doing well at update, but anyone can read. Gilda's uh, not going to be on much. So if you're a fan of hers or, or her mom, you can just turn it off. And then she opens it with a very excited 
uh, live from New York. It's Saturday night. Um, I, I kind of, I really enjoyed this actually. I thought this was a, a good use of Gilda and a good use of the, the, the meta they like to throw in there. Yeah, I agree with that hundred percent. It's funny. Uh, one of the funnier cold openings up to this point, I think in my opinion, and uh, she carries it off well. And then the fact that they kind of run it through the rest of the show so that she ends up actually, you know, still being in the show a lot anyway, it was just, I thought it worked really well. I also enjoyed it. Great cold open. Uh, I didn't, the one thing that was, uh, that was, I don't know if you guys noticed, but the, the boom mic shadow kept hitting her in the face and it was really kept distracting me. Uh, so that was annoying, but otherwise I thought, and I recently watched in the interest of full disclosure, the documentary love Gilda. I watched it on Tubi and uh, after watching it, and then coming back, this is the first episode since I've watched Love Gilda. Really strikes me just how young and vibrant she is here. Uh, so, you know, obviously it was a bit of a sad bio piece, but uh, so it, it was really nice to see this. So you, do you recommend the documentary to those who are curious? Oh my gosh, yes. Uh, lots of interviews with uh, old cast, lots of archive footage, some great behind the scenes stuff, and actually gave me a renewed appreciation. Because on our last episode, Keith, I, I kind of kicked Gilda around a little, saying that uh, she wasn't what uh, her her legend makes her out to be all the time. But And then, you know, they show all these highlights. One thing I did notice in Love, Gilda is that a lot of the highlights we haven't seen yet. So I really think she's going to pick up steam when she becomes an even bigger star on the show. I, I think so. And I've kind of been skirting around that. But like we haven't seen Lisa Lupner or Roseanne, Rosanna Dana and all that stuff yet. So there is more to come from Gilda. But I do stand by the fact that up to this point, she hasn't shown as much. Well, I think Barbara Walters is the wor- one of the worst sketches they do. So we jump to the monologue and Jodie Foster comes out, says she's not Miss Teenage America, which aired earlier in the evening. Um, and I'm so glad that that doesn't air anymore. So she's 14 years old at this point. She's obviously nervous. She's doing some some shambling, messing with the hat and the hair. There's some odd delivery. But when you consider this is a 14 year old kid, this must have been terrifying for her. Absolutely terrifying. She compares herself to some of the previous hosts, which gets a little chuckle for me. She has the same cue cards as Elliot Gould, and it's just a picture of a cat on a card. You know, her delivery was not great, to be honest. It was actually quite bad in spots, but she's a kid and she's nervous. I'm not going to throw any shade on Jodie Foster in this episode, I don't think. Whether or not they should have asked a 14-year-old to do it is another matter. She did what she could, and she did it okay. We think of her now, I, I try just trying to think of what's the last thing I saw her in, but you know, we know her as a mature actor today. Uh, to me, to see her that young, and yeah, she was a bit shaky. Um, the, the one thing I really noticed was she was kind of fumbling with the cue cards, and then right after that, she did the gag about the cue cards and Elliot Gould. So, I don't know if maybe that was intentional. Pretty bad monologue for me. It was uh, blessedly short. I thought the kid jokes were really stupid. Like, well, we got a kid. Let's just write some kid jokes. Really didn't think there was a lot of effort there. Uh, She was definitely nervous. Her delivery was uh, terrible. So, yeah, in general, the uh, and she kept pushing up her hat to get it out of her eyes. Just so clunky. Miss for me on the monologue. Did not enjoy it. Glad it was short. So we have a filmed ad, and it's Chevy Chase for Pilsen's Feedbag Dinner. And this is another leftover bit that was recorded earlier. And it's basically uh, for people on the go, they, they, they can wear a feed bag with the food in it. So there's a, it's a full meal in there. And a little cameo at the end from Chevy's wife, uh, Jacqueline Carlin. I thought this was funny. Not, it didn't have me in stitches. It's not a top tier commercial, but it did get a couple uh, chuckles from me. Yeah, it was definitely worth a chuckle. Not a grand concept or anything like that, a chuckle. But because he was doing it, he made it funny. He's, he's a talent. And it's interesting, too, that, you know, he's he's gone and yet he's still lingering with these pre-recorded bits. And then they go to the audience and we, there's a Chiron and one guy is a New York State lottery loser. But there are some people with the feed bags on their faces in the audience. Yeah. You know what? It's funny to seeing Chevy come out, uh, how much I kind of, I don't want to say I pop for him, but uh, I'm like, oh, cool. It's Chevy. Uh, it's just something welcoming about him uh, in a weird way, even though it's very clear that I don't miss him on the update desk. But, you know, he's good at what he does. He, he's got that leading man charisma. His chuckle at the end was just fantastic. I thought he was really good in this. And I, I thought the content, uh, the, the joke was silly. 
and they did enough with it. Uh, there was there was an absurdity to it, which I really enjoyed. I didn't like the guy in the audience carrying on the joke. Uh, I, I would have got rid of that. That didn't work for me. But uh, but I liked Chevy Chase's little short film. I actually thought it was pretty funny. They, they must have put him up to that because, I mean, they all had feed bags and, and you wouldn't. I don't think you would bring a feed bag to the show. They must have given them out or something. Yeah, that's one of those things where it's like more you can get the audience involved, the more they're going to like you. You know, I can see them throwing a few props out there and say, hey, you want to be on the camera? Yeah, yeah. The next sketch is the bees. Uh, Jodie Foster, again, she plays a teenager, but this teenager is a teenage stoner. So I guess we're supposed to believe she's a little older or or the, 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 the hard stuff went around younger then than I remember it. And she's visited by Lorraine, who plays Peter B, a.k.a. kind of a Peter Pan B, and John Belushi, who is Tinker B, and Jody thinks she's tripping. She says she doesn't believe in bees, and every time she says that, it harms Tinker B more and more. Jody says they're not bees, they're actors, and kids just don't believe in bees these days. Lorraine gives the line of the sketch, bees are like Muppets with longer contracts. So as Tinkerbell is dying... Uh, Jody gets people to clap their hands to bring Tinkerbell back to life. The audience claps. Belushi won't get up unless he has a standing ovation. The audience complies. Belushi's back to life. Happy ending for everyone. Then they go to the booth where Dave Wilson and a crew member whose name I can't remember are, are dressed as bees and they throw to a commercial. Lorraine was good in this. Uh, Belushi was okay. I didn't buy Jody Foster as a stoner at this point. I really didn't like this sketch. Uh, there was a nice, the, 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 the bit with the booth was a nice touch, but not enough to save it. Yeah, it wasn't much of a sketch. I, I, this is kind of my feeling about Saturday Night Live in general often, is that you can imagine a bunch of people writing in a back room and they're exhausted and they, you reach that point where you laugh at anything. And it's funny to you and your friends at the time, but then <laughs> it makes it to <laughs> air. I think the only thing that saved it was uh, Belushi's little groaning reactions. Mm. That was the only thing that made me chuckle in the sketch. Oh, there was um, actually a line. Jodie Foster says, uh, he says to the bees, you guys are okay when you get a good concept. <laughs> I thought that was cute because it, it's kind of true. It, it, it's probably some of the criticisms they were getting, uh, you know, in the media back then too, was that, oh well, yeah, if they get a decent sketch, they're not bad. But <laughs> so I thought it was yeah. good to tap on that. Jody shoots hard on NBC's Saturday night. <laughs> from the mouths of babes, eh? One thing I noticed big time is she is immediately more comfortable acting rather than just being herself. She just seemed like she was more on, she was more confident, and she just, her discomfort in being able to do a role, uh, I thought was really noticeable. Lorraine, as the as the earnest bee, I thought was great. She looked like she was having a good time. I, I thought I... She was getting a kick out of it. She kind of kept smirking. You know, I like the shit on the music uh, in these first couple of seasons. And it's funny to mention, uh, to hear Jodie Foster mention Pink Floyd and Aerosmith and wonder why they are not on the show. And I, I didn't like the uh, talk to the audience stuff. I, I don't like when they do no. shit like that. So we now go to Brian Wilson. And let's talk Brian Wilson here. So Brian at this point was... Astray, we'll say he had a lot of physical issues, a lot of mental issues, a lot of addiction problems. At this point, it was sort of a bright light, though, in this, in a sense, he was in the midst of the Brian is back tour where he returned to touring and performing with his brothers out of the studio. Now, whether this was uh, legal pressure to fulfill some obligations or a rare bit of mental stability, due to his association with uh, Dr. Eugene Landy. Brian was back for the first time in 11 or 12 years. Brian Wilson, fellas. Well, again, legends, right? Uh, the Beach Boys are part of our culture. So when you hear that he's going to be on the show, it's like, yes, this is fantastic. We know that the Beach Boys didn't write classic opera or anything like that. It was, it was you know, pop tunes of the time. But still, they just, they stand out as part of our cultural history. So uh, really look forward to him being on the show. I, of course, uh, knew, uh, knew of the Beach Boys. And my perception of Brian Wilson is that he was a uh, reclusive, mentally ill songwriter, production wonderkind of sorts. You know, it's a little bit like Sid, if Sid Barrett hadn't have gone quite so far. He kind of had that same same thing going on where you know he took too much acid and then he was he withdrew too deep and uh Sid just never came back though 
but uh, Brian did, and you know, good for him. I've listened to Pet Sounds and Surfs Up and some classic Beach Boys albums uh, and enjoyed them. I don't think that he should be on Saturday night in 1976, however. Now, some of this association is, is related to a, a television special that uh, Lauren Michaels did, uh, and it had some sketches in it with uh, Aykroyd and Belushi. It aired in August of uh, 76. I know, Ron, you and I were talking about that right before we started recording. You watched some of that stuff. Yeah, you know what? It's very much in harmony with how Brian Wilson performed on the show, to be honest. You don't want to kick a guy when he was down, but they were pretty cringeworthy segments. And, you know, even this first appearance by him uh, that night was probably his best one of the night. And this one was actually written in, in 63 before he got ill. Uh, I, I actually kind of enjoyed this first one back home. It was on 15 big ones. I mean, Wilson was very limited. His accompaniment was strong. His backup singers were given it. See the, the expressions on their faces and how much they're pouring into that. They, they were earning their money. I didn't realize that the song had been written back in 63. So I guess it, the lyrics fit very much in the other things they were putting out at that time. Yeah, to me, there was nothing outstanding about it. It was pretty shallow and campy. And his performance was certainly not what, what you remembered of him. I like that he was waiting for everybody to shut up before he did anything. I thought that was pretty cool. Keith, apologies to you. Apologies to the thousands for being a broken record. I really just don't like Saturday Night Live musically in this era. I think it's very, very narrow stylistically. And with the rare exception, it's all white bread dad rock that is just not fun for the young television viewer on a Saturday night. I really wish they stepped up their game. I get it that he's a name. And so, you know, you want to bring in a name, you want to pop a rating. Spoiler alert, Lauren Michaels is going to say later in a sketch that they're trying to be a hip young show. Don't act like it all the time. I, the, you know, I talked about this more in season one, that there's almost, I don't want to say hypocrisy, but there's the show sometimes doesn't know who it is. Are you a hip, edgy, young, late night, cool show? Because if you are, you're not going to have Brian Wilson and Paul Simon and just these old dudes week after week coming out and singing this medium tempo dad rock you need to mix it up it's not successful for me i know that i'm usually at odds on the uh on the three chairs here but i gotta believe that there are people at the time that are also watching this and just snoozing through these musical performances they are not interesting you know, it'd be easy to misconstrue what I'm saying. Like, oh, he just, this just, just because it's not your style of music, you don't like it. That's not what I mean. I loved when Neil Sadaka was out there full of energy and Desi Arnaz, obviously Patti Smith is a little more up my alley. I'm saying that too often, almost every time, I've already said it, they're just stylistically so narrow that I find it frustrating. And we'll see Brian a couple more times tonight. So our next bit is Puberty Helper. And this is an advertisement for a, uh, a puberty aid to help you through them awkward years. Um, and it's a large, basically a human-sized paper bag with a happy face on it that you can hide in. So Jodie Foster is the spokesperson for it, although Dan is the pitch man. Um, and she puts on the bag and she goes and chats with Neil Levy, who wears one of his own. And his is actually way better than hers. There's a really bad joke in there that actually made me laugh. Jodie Foster says, uh, I have a class. Neil Levy says, who, who's the class with? And she says, Mr. Cotter. And he says, oh, I didn't know he was back. I'm ashamed of myself for laughing at that one. Aykroyd does a great job as a pitchman. Jodie's all in. But this sketch was kind of a lost cause for me. It was just kind of kind of goofy and, and, to be frank, kind of dumb even for SNL. Did you notice, though, that the Cotter joke just completely tanked with the audience? Absolutely, yeah. But kind of a weird sketch. I think, again, I think another one of those things that was funny when they wrote it at 2 a.m., but just didn't translate. The only thing that really, to me, saved it was Dan Aykroyd and that spiel he does at the end. Dan Aykroyd in SNL, he's almost like Lionel Hutz. Like, it's all one character. You know what I mean? But it was broken out into these different segments. This was certainly one of the weaker ones for me, although I got a really good laugh when he lit, when he was going through the, the list of flaws and he said, two pointy elbows. 
<laughs> Cracked me up. So we now go to airport security, and Lorraine plays an airport security person. Brian Wilson is in the background as a security guard. So Garrett Morris goes through with absolutely no lines. Uh, Ackroyd tries to go through, and he keeps setting off the alarm. And he dumps a whole bunch of metal things from his pockets and trench coat and some funny bits with spoons and clamps and I think a saw in there. But he's still setting the alarm off. He wears a metal collar with a lock, and he's just in love with metal. Satisfied that he's just a metal lover, Lorraine lets him pass. And then the Tin Man from The Wizard of Oz, played by Alan Zweibel, goes through. And Brian Wilson says he was surprised it was the Tin Woodsman and should have gotten his autograph. I watched this, and I couldn't really find the jokes. Um, this was kind of a weak one for me. I mean, Aykroyd was funny with his performance, I think, but it was funny because he was doing funny things. Uh, I, I don't see how this made it out of the writer's room. I have to disagree. This is, uh, you know, I may have chuckled up to this point, but this is the first sketch that actually made me laugh. Why? This is what they did, was this ridiculous humor. Dan Aykroyd did it really well. And it, certain people, certain comedians can do that thing where they, they hit the note and then they just kind of keep dragging it out and it just gets funnier as it goes. For me, that's how it, it came across. And also kind of relevant because airport security is even more ridiculous today. So... Uh, mm. I guess maybe that made it a little funny for me too, but yeah, I, I just thought he, uh, he really pulled it off. I actually really enjoyed Lorraine in this, who always looks incredible in wigs, and uh, I thought she played this really well. Uh, the, the metal man gimmick of getting on the airplane and dumping everything out, like all the metal in this clown car of a coat was okay. I did think the ending was pretty clever. I liked Tin Man coming in. It took me a while to notice Brian Wilson as the uh, security guard. And by the way, I'm very in, in favor of stars and cameos where they don't play themselves are always a lot of fun. Uh, but uh, I, I think I would be a little more on your perception on this, Keith, in that it, it didn't really do a lot for me. I thought it was pretty one note with uh, some, some decent performances. So then we go to Weekend Update and it's Jane Curtin and she opens it with uh, I'm Jane Curtin and here but for the grace of God goes Gilda, which I think is a shot back to Gilda's bit about Jane knowing how to read from the, from the cold opening. Just a couple of jokes from the first half. Uh, Carter's transitions team, there was just a sight gag and it's made up of Santa Clauses. Jane calls Jimmy Carter, and it's Dan Aykroyd voicing him, and she asks him a trivia question, and the prize is a denim wardrobe. He gets it wrong, so she gives him the uh, Her a Herbie Hancock album and some Lobo aftershave. And then there's a clip of an old mud wrestling match that is said to be Jackie Kennedy Onassis and Christina Onassis having a, a match to decide Aristotle Onassis' estate. So that's the first half before we get to the commercial. What uh, what do you think, fellas? It was pretty flat for me with a couple of little chuckles. Yeah, 100% agree. Jane Curtin is awesome, love her, but uh, kind of weak writing, and she didn't seem super enthused about it. So I had a couple of chuckles, but it wasn't anything amazing. I like Jane trying to do different things. She's trying to, you know, it's time for Jane to try to make this her own and uh, make people forget that somebody else used to do it. I think she's doing better already. I, I find her more invested in it. And I, I just find her delivery of the jokes just gives it a little something extra that Chase's deadpan didn't. Uh, I just think she's better at it. So we go to a commercial, What Kind of Guy Watches Saturday Night? And this is a parody on the old What Kind of Guy Reads Playboy? So Belushi is playing Steve Bouchakis, which is the name of uh, one of his best friends from Chicago. We've heard that name twice already, I believe. Uh, he's a florist, but he, he, he says he's not gay. And he brags about how many women he's been with. And he likes raunchy sophomore comedy. And that's why SNL works for him. This wasn't great. Belushi was good. But again, it was like just this stupid bit about florists not being gay and how he's and, and because he likes raunchy sophomore comedy, Saturday Night Live is the best show for him. Yeah, kind of flat. Uh, that line about raunchy sophomore comedy, were they just trying to give themselves a nice theme, a nice title, you know, like, hey, we do raunchy sophomore comedy. You should like us. <laughs> it didn't work for me either. And a part of me is like, Belushi's not my favorite cast member. Whenever something offensive happens, it's always coming out of his mouth. And this was no exception. I thought it was 
stupid and in bad taste. And of course, it was Belushi. So the second half, I only have one sketch from, or only one joke written down from the second half. And it's a follow up to last week's story about Morris the cat who had uh, tried to commit suicide nine times but ran out of ways. And they asked for people to send in more ideas. Jane says they've got thousands of good suggestions. And uh, they even got one racist one was how to kill Garrett Morris. Um, I got a chuckle out of that. But as far as this uh, weekend update goes, it's probably the worst since Jane took over. But Jane is all in and she's doing great work. Yeah, her delivery is fine. Like there's no problem there. The jokes were again like a couple of chuckles in there. There was one she did about uh, George Bush retiring from CIA, was it? Yeah. yeah. Completely tanked. Nobody laughed at it. And she just kind of <laughs> kept going, you know. The cat suicide thing, well, I guess, you know, probably played back then. I, it was weird. But <laughs> I do wonder, did they actually put the legit address, I think, on, on the screen for people to mail in letters? And I wonder if they actually got mail-ins. Oh, I'm sure they did. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would almost guarantee they did. That Garrett joke was hilarious. That was, that was the laugh of update for me. I also found update really long this time. I don't know if that was just my perception or if it was longer than usual. I don't watch with a stopwatch or anything. It felt long, though. Maybe that's because it wasn't as funny. Uh, But I agree. It was definitely the worst of Jane's updates so far. But uh, like you said, I think she's really good at it. And I really like how she owns her mistakes. So we go to Brian Wilson singing Love is a Woman. This is just a bad song. This is not the work of America's musical genius. They couldn't even say that the band and the backup people saved this one. Yeah, it just bizarre the band is is great don't get me wrong he was not he just seemed uncomfortable sitting there like didn't know what to do with his hands almost you know um, <laughs> he he couldn't sing well he seemed like confused a little at the very end there was some kind of weird thing that happened where they, they let let the camera roll but somebody was calling for jody maybe or something and he stand uh, brian wilson stands up and kind of wanders off yeah i noticed that he just gets up and walks away at the end of it. It's it's weird, but after sitting for a minute, it's just yeah, blessedly short. Anyway, I mean, I, I don't have I I kind of uh, I kind of blew my load, so to speak, on the uh, first performance with my uh, disdain for the music. That, that I don't need to add anything here. This was ridiculous, and I was glad it was brief. So we now go to little known talents of the not ready for primetime players. Uh, Gilda hosts it and her, not hosted, but she's just standing out there as Gilda and on stage with her is Lorraine. And Lorraine's little known talent is that she does sound effects. She does a baby crying and then she does a yipping dog. Then she plays the lip and then she does a chicken possessed by the devil. You can tell Lorraine is a true mime and or improv performer because when she finished with doing the the baby voice despite the fact there was no baby there she put the baby down this was a really fun segment it was gilda being gilda which i've always liked and it was lorraine having some fun maybe this was just something they stuck in there to uh, to fill time but uh, but i liked this i really really did yeah you can tell this is the kind of stuff that they were they probably always do horsing around between scenes you know when they're rehearsing and stuff and somebody said hey we should make a segment out of this you know it does come across a little bit like a elementary school talent show but what she did was great it was funny and she did it well i really enjoyed this uh, segment i thought it was natural and i thought it was pretty cool it's, it's nice when they do something a little different like this sometimes the baby one really got me uh, that i was like holy shit uh, L- lorraine was just fantastic uh, doing all of this. And of course, the exorcist bit at the end, I've mentioned several times, Lorraine loves horror movies. I think she would have been an amazing scream queen in this era. So now we go to Don Pardo, the first 50 years. Incidentally, uh, Don Pardo was close to 60 at this point. Um, Dan Aykroyd plays narrator Danny Cadenza Fitzjacobs. So this is taking us through the life of Don Pardo. So it starts in the hospital. Belushi and Curtin are his parents and and Beats as a nurse brings him in and Pardo talks immediately. Then we go to school. Pardo tells on another kid and says in his perfect announcer voice, another naughty act by Stevie. Garrett as a train porter hears him and his wife in a berth and she's asking him to do it again and uh, he does a pitch for a hotel john belushi plays an nbc hr executive and he gives uh, belushi or gives don pardo the a script reading it pardo says will be right uh, right black 
Then we have a uh, TV show or radio show that he worked on and uh, Pardo spoils the show and then uh, works on a TV show and he advertises a machine that actually killed one of the characters' husbands. Finally, Lorne is casting a new show where he's auditioning Don Pardo and he says he says some names wrong, but Lorne has a good hunch about him. This is a long sketch. It's funny in spots and basically we're seeing, kind of seeing the world through Don Pardo's eyes. No one's playing Don Pardo. We're just hearing his voice. Um, I really liked parts of this and I really didn't like parts of it, but Dan Aykroyd was in as a, a narrator that would pop in every now and then. To be perfectly honest, this probably could have been a lot better, but uh, for, for the episode it was on, it was okay. Yeah, I have some really good parts to it. I think, first of all, it's cool that they honored Don Pardo by doing it, you know, one of their own. And it was really cute writing, you know, the way it was all put together and designed. Maybe a bit ambitious for the amount of re- rehearsal time they had because it got a little cumbersome in the transitions and things like that. There was one bit uh, on the train, the, the set they used for the train, I thought worked really well. Just the curtains moving and kind of clever, you know. So they were really shooting for the moon there, I think, compared to some of the other sketches they do. It worked sometimes and it didn't work other times, but it wasn't horrible, I suppose. I mean, I agree with you guys. It was too long for me. It just kind of kept going. I liked some of it, just like you guys. I really liked the Lorne Michaels part. Uh, I mentioned at the top of the show that uh, he, he kind of references that they're the young, hip show, which I take contention with, but whatever. Pretty hit and miss for me, but, but overall, I don't think it was worth the time it took. The big laugh for me was when Don Pardo, as the baby, said, like, that's right, Dad. And, like, the big laugh was right there, and it never followed up, you know what I mean? Yeah, I forgot that. That was really good when he took the baby and his big booming voice came out. That was great. Yeah, because that's the joke. And don't get me wrong, I, I love Don Pardo. I, 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 I'm a huge, huge fan. But uh, this one, this one didn't work. So now we go to our next sketch. It's a, a sketch with a, a teacher. Jodie Foster is uh, leaving junior high, and she wants to say goodbye to her favorite teacher, who she actually has a crush on. And that's played by Dan Aykroyd. She's very nervous, and uh, she writes a poem for him that makes him read. And then they, uh, they say goodbye for the summer. So a few bits about this. This is really good. And I suspect this might be a Marilyn Suzanne Miller piece that's not out for yucks, more out for sort of a, uh, a feel-good feeling. Jodie Foster does nervous well. She, she flubs some lines here or there. Uh, Aykroyd plays a teacher put in an awkward position really, really well. This, if it is a Miller sketch, it fits in with all her other Miller sketches and that this is a very good piece not exactly Saturday Night Livey, though. Yeah, it's like um, well acted. I got to say, for Saturday Night Live, it was weird. If this were a scene in a dramatic movie, you would be like, "Wow, good performances," you know, because you felt the cringe, you felt the the tension, uh, you saw the intention. But I kept waiting for, okay, it's going to be a joke in the end. What's the punchline? And there was no punchline. It just kind of ended and. There was no resolution to anything like just weird. I I don't understand what it was for. Kind of like that sketch, Keith, with Dan Aykroyd, the diner sketch with Dan Aykroyd and Jane Mm -hmm. Curtin. Is that that the same writer? Yeah, I think I I couldn't. Sorry, Matt, I couldn't confirm that this is her. But considering all her other work uh, up to this, I'd be willing to bet that this was one of hers. It shared a vibe uh, for me with that sketch before in the, in the awkward dynamic between the two people. But that one had uh, some, some really over-the-top characterization. And I, I just thought this one was a little weird. It didn't work for me. I, I think you have already said it. It didn't feel right for the show. It, it's just not the kind of thing that works on Saturday Night Live. I don't, and to Ron's point, there was, there's no really uh, big joke at the end or anything. It, it just kind of ends. I just, I just thought it was awkward. This was very Wonder Years-y to me, which I loved. I, I mean, I love the Wonder Years, but it had that sort of vibe. Yeah, in a different setting, you would have said, oh, that was well done scene. Congratulations. Yeah. Uh, Gilda comes out to introduce Gary Weiss's film, and she's dressed as if, well, she was on her way home, and they asked her to stick around just to introduce the, uh, the film. Gary Weiss is talking to kids at a daycare, I think, about their dreams, and one kid talks about Batman, Another kid says he dreams about his teacher. Another kid demonstrates the monsters that he dreams about. And one kid says, I think a woman reaches across the ocean and touches New York from London. This was a slice of lifey and he had that and, you know, the kids were cute. But I don't know. This is, I guess I liked it, but I didn't, you know, understand why this would be anything special to put on Saturday Night Live. 
You guys talk about these films in previous episodes, and it's to me, it's like, what are they trying to do here? Are they trying to be artsy? Doing this segment with the kids, obviously they're cute. They're going to win over people. So are they just looking for an easy win? You know, it was well shot. The what the kids said was cute and funny. Uh, other than that, it's like okay, yeah. Like we're all fathers. I mean, this is any conversation with any of my kids at that age. And now I'll be known as the guy who hated on the kids, but. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty weak Gary Weiss film. It comes off like this isn't fucking kids say the darndest things or America's funniest home videos. You know, uh, Gary Weiss films, I like it when they're when they're slice of lifey and uh, s- some good New York material and some good interesting characters. And I thought this was really dumb. Fucking kids running around. And I don't know, did, did you roll this out because Jodie Foster's on? This was bottom tier Gary Weiss film for me. Not the worst, but certainly, uh, oh, I mean, I'll never watch it again. This was a bad Gary Weiss film. I, I liked Gilda coming out and introducing it, though, as she's on her way out. That was uh, one of my favorite moments of the episode, actually. Yeah. The best yeah. part of the whole thing was her introduction. <laughs> yeah, I agree. So we now go to the King Kong dirge and it's Garrett singing a sad song about King Kong and the new King Kong movie was about to come out in about a month's time. Great performance, not particularly funny except the context. Yeah. He's a great singer. He certainly sang better than Brian Wilson. (laughs) It's not the first time Garrett's done better than the musical (laughs) act either. And he's still funny too. I do think it's a shame that he's relegated to the role he is on the show. Maybe his time will come. I don't know. I haven't seen him all, but this, this is just another segment that didn't work for me. This episode is being pretty middle of the road, right down the stretch. I appreciate the performances of all the cast, but joke-wise, comedy-wise, just doesn't do it for me tonight. Jody's remark in that first sketch about, you know, when you get a good concept, it's it's really hitting home. They had the opportunity, like that's a funny concept, a dirge about King Kong, and they could have wrote some really funny lines in there for him to sing, and I think it would have been a hit, but they just kind of actually made it serious almost. (laughs) So (laughs) what a weird choice, you know? So now we go to uh, what's usually a Chiron, but there's actually no Chiron come up on this one. And it's Gilda in the audience, and she's reacting to being on camera like uh, like any regular audience member would. I thought this was really funny and the perfect way to end uh, end the show long thing about Gilda being phased out. Yeah, just a quick bit, but she was adorable. I'm hoping for the big Gilda turn to come soon. I shouldn't say turn. It's not like she's not good now, knowing how good she's going to be. That documentary made me excited to see more of her, so it certainly did its job in that regard. Her minimal presence in this episode. She was she was cute and entertaining in every little bit of it she was in. And we've never had an issue with Gilda doing stuff like this. We've always been very positive on Gilda being Gilda. Sure. Um, or even a lot of her other characters, but it's the repetition of a certain few that are really killing her. Which, I mean, what, is she going to say no to airtime? No, of course not. So our next sketch is I'm Not Black, and Jane plays a, a wife to Garrett Morris, and she's sitting him down on the couch to admit to him that she's not black. He's devastated at first and wonders if he can ever get past it. This was a really good idea. It had a lot of good lines in it. It was well-performed. I can't say it was perfect because it was something missing, um, but uh, this was a pretty good sketch. Yeah, I think this was really strong. Funny concept. I don't know if the audience got all the jokes. It's almost like they didn't rehearse it enough or too ad-libbed or something so that they kind of brushed over some stuff. But all in all, it's it's a funny concept. And, uh, you know, especially the ending where I don't think the audience picked it up, but that she thinks he's white. And it's topical, too. It's still topical today, I think so. Yeah, for sure. I thought this was some funny shit. I think I probably laughed at this more than anything else uh, on the broadcast. There was something a little uh, clunky or rough around the edges. It wasn't tight. Uh, that That's for sure. But Jane was fantastic. And Garrett was really good. I thought the concept was good. The jokes were good. They performed the hell out of it. And yeah, this, this was a, a real highlight of the evening for me. I, I like to get to see Jane Curtin do more interesting things. I thought this was a more interesting thing she got to do. I really liked it. This episode, to be honest, has been a bit of a slog. And... Maybe the episode would have benefited a bit if this was earlier in the show. I 100% agree with that. Uh, Yeah? Okay. Yeah, because they put it right after his King Kong dirge, too, which is weird. Like, why not space him out a little bit in the show? Yeah, and it would have really gave some life to the earlier section, I think. Yeah, because there's been some real big dead spots. So we now go to Mr. Mike's least love bedtime stories, and this one is The Little Train That Died. 
Um, it's a parody of the little train that could, but his wheels actually had a heart attack as they were going up a hill. The train rolls back down the hill and hits a school bus, killing 150 children, nobody over the age of nine. Unlike all the other Mr. Mikes, this one he has uh, Jodie Foster with him sitting on his lap. And I got to say that having a kid on his lap for the story makes this all the more sinister and all the more really hilarious. Of all the Mr. Mikes we've seen, this has definitely been my favorite. And it's actually one of the ones I, I remember from years and years ago, the little train that died. So uh, this one got big thumbs up for me. Yeah, super dark. I guess that's what makes it funny. And you're almost like, is it okay if I laugh at this? <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> there's some pretty tragic things he says in it. But, yeah, it it, it was a hit. It's funny. I'm really, uh, Keith, you know, I dig this guy, uh, Michael, and just having him sit there in this shady room with the glasses and his outfit and his voice and having a little girl jump into his lap. Uh, that was, that was a big enough laugh for me. Uh, I thought the story was fine, but that was, uh, uh, that was certainly with intent and, uh, I got a kick out of it. So our next bit is Good Vibrations, and it's one of the most perfect songs of the 1960s. This inspired more people to try different stuff than probably any song in rock history. It is not, however, this performance of it, which uh, is not good. A little kind of sad to see. Oh, what happened here? I feel bad saying negative things about it because I know it was a hard time in his life, but the other two numbers... The writing was just bad, let alone his performance. At least it had the band and everything. Then we get to this song. Oh, good vibrations. Okay, we all know this one. We all love this song. Where did the band go? It needed the band, obviously. It's it's a big, rocky, uh, you know, peppy tune. And he's just there with a piano, just almost tragic. And then the ending, usually if you're going to play acoustically a song that was recorded with a fade out, you just change the ending to make it end. But he actually tried to play the fade out on the piano and then just stopped and awkwardly folded his hands. And it's a shame to think of him as the cultural icon. And then I almost feel like they made him come out and do this and, and drug him out when he wasn't ready. I don't think it did his career any, any favors. I mean, I agree with you guys. What a mess. Good for Brian, who not too long before this was, you know, unable to leave his bedroom, really. But... Should he have been there? I don't, uh, yeah, I don't think so. Anyway, yeah. And I think I read that his therapist was like standing off stage, holding up cards with, you know, positive reinforcement on them to get him through the moments and stuff like that. So mm -hmm. he just probably was not ready for this, you know? No, I don't think so. So now we go to the good nights and uh, Jody is there to say goodbye. She's joined by the cast and Brian Wilson. She has to kill a little bit of time. She does well. I got to say for me, this was a moment of like, ah. I just found it really heartwarming when she said uh, that her friend, you know, her new friends were were with her there and then they all came out. And yeah, I just thought it was great. Yeah, I, nothing really jumped out of me with the goodbyes other than, you know, I feel like at some point I've Jodie Foster was used pretty sparingly. And I feel like sometimes I just forgot she was hosting. So the epilogue, Jodie Foster, she struggled a bit uh, to uh, to match her child's success. But she did, absolutely. In the early 80s was uh, some forgettable stuff. But she jumped back into success in 1986 with The Accused, which got her her first Academy Award. In 1991, though, I think she entered film Immortality with Clarice Starling in Silence of the Lambs, a film that is still as good today as it was then. And that got her her second uh, Academy Award. And she went on to do a few other things, uh, Summersby, Maverick, Nell, which she also produced, Contact, Anna, Anna and the King, Panic Room. She continued acting and still acts today, but made a successful jump into producing. I actually rank her as one of the movie's most successful film stars as far as uh, the combination of like success and respect is considered. I think she's way, way up there. But the Jodie Foster we see tonight is not yet that Jodie Foster. Did her best. She was nervous. She was clunky. Some material that was written for her is not particularly good. She was good in the teacher thing and the bit with Mr. Mike. 
the B thing was they did their best with it, but it was kind of stupid, and I don't think it would have worked with anyone in the role. And she wasn't in the Don Pardo thing. She wasn't in I'm Not Black. For a kid, she was good, and I can't see many other kids being as good, and I can't see any being better at that point. So, yeah, she did all right. How did Jodie Foster do for you guys? She's amazing. She's a legend. All the things she's done and accomplished, to me, her the best thing she ever did was Nell. You know, she's known for so much today. I just think it's neat to go back and see her as a younger person tackling these things. And for me, what they gave her to do, she did okay with. Maybe showed some nerves and spots, but they didn't really give her a ton of great stuff to work with anyway. So she did what she could with what they gave her. I agree. I feel like they didn't know what to do with her. Uh, she was a little bit all over the place, but sometimes I thought she really shined. Uh, I mentioned I did not like the monologue. I, she's obviously better uh, when she is acting than just out there being herself. Ron, Ron I, I think Silence of the Lambs is a lot better than Nell. I, I'll fight about it another time. It depends on what you're comparing, if it's her performance or the script. That's a yeah. fair point. There are nuances. Yeah. yeah. So now the music. This is Brian Wilson's solo soul appearance since then he's battled more mental issues uh, manifested drugs alcohol overeating a lot of reckless behavior he's worked off and on with the beach boys throughout the last 40 some years fortunately though despite he still has his challenges but it's kind of been a happier ending at this point for brian wilson as he's really seen as 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 a genius of his period of time and uh, and he is performing and and from what i can tell doing quite well this was not a good performance at all there was nothing redeeming about this beyond well i'm glad to see brian is able to go do it again i don't really think he should have been booked to be perfectly honest if it was a ratings ploy congratulations at work but yeah my goodness this was not uh this was not a good performance yeah let's face it we'll never forget the legend of brian wilson and the beach boys and the impact they had on our culture. But probably this was a low point and he had high points after this. So that's great. This was just not good. Yikes. And this was promoting new material. If I saw this, I'd be like, well, skip the concert, you know? Yeah. Another big miss for me on Saturday night musically. I wasn't sure uh, what state Brian Wilson was in uh, at around this time in 1976. And apparently it's not a good one. It certainly shows he should not have been on the program. And uh, I mean, even if he didn't just seem not all here, uh, I'm just sick of this kind of music on Saturday night. So what was your worst sketch or worst bit of the night? For me, it was the uh, crush on the teacher skit mm -hmm. because it was it just seemed like it was trying to be a serious piece when we were looking for a comedy piece. I agree with Ron. I thought that was uh, very awkward. There was no jokes and it didn't go anywhere. Uh, weird choice for the show. Surprised it made it out of dress rehearsal. Uh, definitely the low point of the night for me. I'm going with the B sketch. I found the B sketch to be just uh, convoluted and silly. Some half decent performances in there, but I, I didn't like it. I just, it was a terrible way to, to kick off the show. Yeah, and I, I really like the teacher sketch. So what was your best sketch or bit of the night? I'm not black, I think would be my favorite, but the close runner up was the metal man at the airport. So I agree with Ron mostly. My favorite sketch of the night was Jane and Garrett in the uh, the race sketch, but the metal man was, was not a close second for me, but that's not the point. Yeah, the jokes were there. The performance was there. Uh, everything just really gelled together on it. Good concept, the perfect people for it. I dig it. I went with Mr. Mike. I, I thought that was a masterpiece, Mr. Mike sketch. And it was actually pretty much head and shoulders above everything else. Um, and I don't know what it was about the I'm Not Black sketch. Uh, the, whatever the, the, the foibles you guys noticed, I think just maybe hit me 10 times as hard. And who's your star of the night? Uh, I think for me, when you're looking at an overall strong performance, it's tough, but I really like Dan Aykroyd. I, I get your point, Matt, that he tends to play the same person over and over again, but he does it really well. And he's got lots of energy and, and he's big, which is what the show needs. The, the bits he did, he's just big and out there and solid in what he does. My favorite performance of the evening was from Lorraine Newman. I thought she was really good in everything she was in. Uh, great in that unique bit where she got to be herself and show off some talents and her, when she was in, she was in a lot of supporting roles, yes, but I just thought she really owned them. And what can I say? There was something about Lorraine tonight. She was making me laugh, and I found her very magnetic. 
I couldn't agree more. I went with Lorraine, the, the, the hidden talents. She was really my favorite thing about the Peter Pan sketch. Even in the Don Pardo, 50 years of Don Pardo, she played a teacher and she was good in that. Yeah, I really liked Lorraine, but I, I thought this was an especially good night for Dan as well. I think we got to give a nod to uh, Gilda Radner, too, because she yeah. was super solid all night. So overall, to me, this was a super weak episode, and most of that, I think, was on the writing. Jodie Foster was nervous, uh, and the uh, music was bad. There was a few good moments in here, but none of that is because of the host or the musical guest. The episode was carried, and, and carried is a, is a very generous word because I didn't think this was a strong one by the not ready for primetime players. There was not much with groups. This was all very small stuff, I think, uh, except for the Don Pardo bit. I think this episode uh, in the long run is going to be extremely forgettable. Very low on recurring characters, which I like, and also very low on political stuff, which I, I don't know if I like that or not. I don't know. Anyway, I gave this one a three out of 10. I agree with everything you said there, except maybe, maybe the rating. I don't know if I'd be that harsh, but... When you think that there are some episodes along the way in its long history that actually give you gut-busting laughs, then yeah, this was not one of them for sure. So it's definitely middle to low end on the scale. I disagree, though. I think it will be remembered in a bad way for uh, the Brian Wilson performances. Uh, I'll give it a five. There's really nothing worse than a boring one. Uh, Like the train wrecks can be fun to watch. The good ones are obviously just good. I really hate when they have three songs in a show. Stop having three songs in an episode. Ugh, I wish I had a time machine. It's too much music for me. They didn't know what to do with the host. She wasn't in it enough. Uh, the not ready for primetime players, as we discussed, really carry the uh, kind of jokeless, lifeless show uh, to at least being watchable. But only just barely. I give it a four out of ten. With my three, Ron's five and Matt's four, it averages out at four. Over at the Internet Movie Database, they gave this one a 6.7. Makes it the 18th best of the year, which I think is where it deserves to be. Well, they went 6.7, which, I mean, the scale is different, but uh, the positioning is right, I think. Isn't, yeah, isn't that a bit low for our Internet ratings? Yeah, I think it's the same rating they gave Karen Black. So, Ron, thank you very much for joining us tonight. It was a lot of fun having you on, and I, I really enjoyed uh, enjoyed your perspective this evening. Me Thanks too, so much for having me. So hopefully we can have you back uh, early season three. I'd love that. So, Matt, next week uh, we'll be joined by uh, our friend Jen, who's also making her debut uh, with us. Um, and do you know who the host is? Keith, I watched the credits right till the very end. I know next week. I am so fucking excited that the host is Candace Bergen and her musical guest is my favorite musician of all time, Frank Zappa. This is a, a famous episode for a bunch of reasons. The host and the uh, musical guest are only part of it. So uh, this is going to be an exciting one. We'll be back in about a week with episode 10 of season two, starring Candace Bergen with her musical guest, Frank Zappa. But until then, we'll be wondering who should be on the show here in SN Hell. <laughs>